And then what happened? I think I had to get back to uh, when Larry was setting up my uh, third spinal fusion in San Francisco with this brilliant doctor. You expect me to operate on this lunatic? Larry says, hey, meets meat. <laughs> That's a quote. <laughs> I only heard about that later. I thought that was rather grim, but <laughs> amusing nonetheless. Meets meat. And then I got, I remember getting out of the hospital and being beat up by the police and the, the doctor was furious that, that, that I would have messed with the, or the police would have messed with his surgery. It was a demonstration and we were walking along demonstrating and the cops dove on us. And I said, you know, hit me, but don't break me. And uh, they threw me up against this Jeep and my back hit the bumper and I went unconscious and came to in a whole other hospital. And then I got a pass to go see this benefit that Ravi Shankar had put together for the people in his country. As I walked in, they were having a little riot in the lobby and I, I got beat up again. This cop is coming at me. He's got this newspaper rolled up. Thank God it wasn't the New York Sunday Times or I would have been dead. But I came to in French hospital and they transferred me back to Pacific Presbyterian. And I was not given any more day passes after that. <laughs> and I missed the goddamn concert, which really pissed me off. Welcome to American Prankster, the rivetingly incredible, historically fascinating life story of Wavy Gravy, original beatnik, hippie icon, comedy pioneer, and pioneering activist who uses humor as a weapon. We lived in a caravan of buses and eventually drove two buses all the way from London to the Himalayas. That was a heck of a bus ride. I'm producer Rainbow Valentine, and in this chapter, we roll with Wavy and the Hog Farm on their bus trip from Europe to the Himalayas in 1971. One of my great thrills was driving through the Khyber Pass on the roof of the bus in an altered state. I Tell did me that. More. Yes. What season was it? Was it cold? Was it hot? It was uh, windy <laughs> and very scenic, and I wouldn't have uh, had it any other way. It was a great adventure. The Khyber Pass is an infamously precarious mountain road in Pakistan on the border of Afghanistan. The Khyber Pass has been used by humans for thousands of years. You were on the Silk Road then. Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's what the hippies all would ride. It was part of the Silk Road and has been a popular invasion portal into Afghanistan by countless invaders from various kingdoms, tribes, and countries. The Khyber Pass in Pix appears super steep, windy, and stunningly beautiful. But yes, crossing the Khyber Pass on the roof of the bus was certainly caused the gnawing of fingernails and toenails if I could have reached them. I couldn't stick my foot in my mouth, although I did mentally. <laughs> this epic road trip was made possible by the open-ended plane tickets provided by Warner Brothers, producers of the Medicine Ball Caravan movie, which is how Wavy and friends got to Europe in the first place. I, I lived on the roof most of the time, on the roof of the bus. That was home for me. There were uh, little metal things that I would attach onto so I didn't blow off, so I could be up there. And I just, I just loved it. And Jao would come up sometimes. She was a little nervous about life on the roof of the bus. The Medicine Ball Caravan was shot the summer of 1970, with the final Pink Floyd show at Canterbury happening August 31st, 1970. I think we were the only ones in it for the long haul. Most people, they made it to Canterbury and Pink Floyd 
And that was the end of their movie. They segued back to the cement apple. And by the time Wavy's back surgery healed enough for him to return to Europe, along with Jahanara and their new couple BFFs, Larry and Gerger Brilliant, it was probably 1971, the same year Cup of Noodles, the Intel processor, and Hamburger Helper were introduced. A pound of hamburger. Don't you ever get tired of it? Not with Hamburger Helper dinner mix. Cheeseburger macaroni tonight. We'll have all this meat covered with macaroni and hot, bubbling cheddar cheese sauce. You can get tired of hamburger, but you never get tired of Hamburger Helper. We uh, just decided to press on. Woo! We just had, you know, one adventure after the other. Join these miscellaneous modern wanderers and see if you share their amazement and their taste. After the Medicine Ball Caravan, the Hog Farm prepared for their epic road trip. Here's Hog Farmer Dorji Bond on their pre-road trip stay in Paris. And we, too, will be on our way to Paris, sweetheart of the world. Remember, the Living Theater are Wavy's old friends from his Gaslight New York City years who shared their stage for Wavy's Phantom Cabaret show with Moondog and Tiny Tim. When we uh, left London with our new bus, after a brief stint in Amsterdam, we ended up in Paris where the uh, American University in Paris gave us permission to park the bus and work on it so that we could paint it and build bunks that were also our lockers so that we could all sit in it, travel down the road, keep all of our it was a fabulous time and a fabulous place to be. And in the evenings, St. Stephen had on this um, robe that I made him out of white sackcloth. St. Stephen was a hog farmer. It had a big hood on it and it was sleeveless. There was this giant landing halfway down the stairs. And Stephen would sit there and he would hold court, sort of. He would engage people on their way up and down. And so one of the people that started coming was Dalla Dali. Elena Dali was Salvador Dali's wife and muse. And she hung out with us quite a bit. I think at some point we showed her the Hog Farm movie. The Hog Farm movie was made by Hog Farmer David Lebrun as his senior project in film school while the Hog Farm lived in Sunland on the actual Hog Farm. She said, you must show this to Salvador. Salvador Dali is only one of the most famous artists of all time. And so she um, came back with an invitation for only half of us because he had a small apartment. And we threw straws. <gasps> I was in the straw that got to go. And it was fairly amazing. It was a pretty amazing experience. For one thing, the story I really always tell about Salvador is that when you see all these pictures of him in two dimensions, you don't really get how his mustache was a three-dimensional object. I mean, it came out into the room. You know, it extended inches from his face out into the room. And uh, they had a pet ocelot that was the sexiest thing I ever touched. And the ocelot had on a jeweled collar. And Salvador was in a dark green velvet suit. He had a jeweled knob on his cane. And they served us chocolates with liquor in them, which I'd never had before that time. And we sat around and chatted for quite a while. And his apartment was quite magnificent. And then we showed him the movie. And his very favorite thing about the movie was that scene in New Mexico that's in the film where we all pick up the giant 60-foot dome, like 30 or 40 people, and we carry it across the field. He uh, had us rewind and watch it again. He really liked that. 
Salvador Dali is known for his surreal psychedelic paintings. No wonder he liked the psychedelic pioneers. Your travel agent can arrange for Paris or London to be your gateway to all of Europe. I didn't get a chance to ask Wavy if he was at the epic Salvador Dali dinner party. But according to my calculations, he was in the U.S. getting back surgery, not having dinner with Salvador Dali in Paris. But when Wavy healed, he returned to Europe for the epic road trip to the Himalayas. You can roam as you please and stop wherever you like. And then proceeded to begin driving across Europe through Bulgaria, as Calico said, Bulgaria! Calico was a Dutch-born hog farmer who grew up in the World War II resistance in Amsterdam and later was known as the Grateful Dead show ticket guru. Bulgaria! <laughs> but in Bulgaria, you'll encounter the ancient attractions in combination with the most modern conveniences. Now remember, it's 1971. Communist Europe was going strong. Did you encounter any communist borders or any border patrol? Or Oh, they loved it that we were a commune. <laughs> the communists, they like this more than anybody. You're approaching Sofia. Sofia has become a tourist magnet that holidaymakers the world over, who are seeking that decimal difference, find difficult to resist. Here's Dorji. When we were going through Bulgaria, it was winter, and it was very um, cold. And it was all kind of gray, you know? It was like the sky was gray, there was no leaves on the trees, the city was gray. It was all just sort of gray. And we pulled through town in uh, Sofia. We these bright psychedelic painted buses and we're behind the Iron Curtain and we have only a pass-through visa. It's not like, you may not stop except for gas and food. But the kids started following us and they were jumping on the bus and the drivers had the bus doors open and when we stop at a red light, all these kids would climb onto the bus and say, who are you, where are you from, what's going on here? This is so cool, we're so bored and sick of our gray lives. Calico insisted that we pull over And she, who knows five languages, said, okay, we're going to get off. And everybody looked at her like, okay. But I was one of the people that followed her off the bus. I think there was about five of us. Pretty soon the military showed up and they started following us. And we went into this store and Calico was conversing with them in some language of her many. And they started poking her in the back with their bayonets. And I thought, bayonets? What is this, the Civil War? There was this crowd of people that had gathered around and we're watching to see what would happen with the foreigners. And they start harassing her while they're poking her in the back with their bayonets. And I don't know why that bothered me so particularly, but it really did. And she let them have it. And she said, you know, to them in some language, we are buying yogurt. Just, I mean, the way that she said it just backed them off. She just pushed them out of the way. And the people that saw her treat those soldiers like that The way that it uplifted them, that this woman did that, was like, it was just amazing. She knew that she could push, so she pushed. And it was wonderful for all those people to see that sometimes you can push back. And we also had people living in the, we had these things in the bottom of the bus that would unscrew and open up like big doors and they were called the possibility. And that's where, uh, if people were on a regular bus, that's where the luggage would go. But instead of luggage, we had people living in those things, in the possibilities, and it was quite comfortable. And otherwise we would just snuggle up where we sat and slept. And oh yeah, all the uh, seats kind of came out 
and instead of bus seats, they were all tossed out. And then we uh, made footlockers along the sides of the bus. And the footlockers had doors that opened up. And then the doors would have little pieces of wood that would hold them up in the air to cause them to become double beds at night. And then during the day, they would fold up and lay flat against the uh sides of the uh, footlockers. Up front, there was a way that all of the, the seats would come together into a circle. So everybody would ride behind the driver in a circle. And then at night, it would turn into the nighty night show and everything would fold up. And there was just uh, usually one person that stayed up with the driver. And that was often me because I enjoyed that very much, being the shotgun in the night when everybody else was asleep and making sure the driver didn't fall asleep and kill us all. That was kind of glorious, going from one country to the next. Palaces of kings and emperors, world-famed seaside resorts, great cities of the world, and the gay nightlife of a whole continent. No wonder that Europe is luring more and more holiday travelers across the sea. I lived on the roof of the bus, mostly, because of my multitudes of back surgeries. I couldn't do five miles. No, I couldn't do about five feet. And then I, I was very comfortable up there as a lichen. I was a study in black, I think, yes. So I looked like I was a bump on the top of the whale. And then we had a, a rear turret that would open up so you could get onto the roof of the bus. That was kind of excellent. And then I would climb down at night and tell bedtime stories to uh, our crew. I would sort of make stuff up. It was kind of snuggly and big fun. And we kept going across Europe into going across Asia, heading towards Kathmandu, <laughs> of all places. The ancient kingdom of Nepal, last of the forbidden lands, a land of contrasts whose varied architecture marks it as the meeting place of two great religions of the East, Buddhism and Hinduism. Now, it wasn't a random choice for Wavy and the Hog Farm to venture eastward to Kathmandu, capital of Nepal. Here's Wavy's best friend, hog farmer Dr. Larry Brilliant. Our purpose in making this trip was we were going to Bangladesh because there had been this horrific cyclone that had killed as many as a million people. Through the many islands on the edge of the Bay of Bengal in East Pakistan, there raged on November the 12th what was simply the worst of the many cyclones the two million people who live here have ever experienced. And Wavy thought if we created something called Earth People's Earth People's Stomach to go along with Earth People's Park that he had created in Norton, Vermont. We talked about Earth People's Park in episode eight. We created something called Earth People's Stomach and we gathered money and uh, food and medical equipment in the belly of the bus. We could bring it. And in so doing, he didn't have any illusions that we would have enough to really make a dent in the problems in Bangladesh, but he thought he could embarrass the UN agencies so that the United Nations would give some more. And they'd say, oh, the hippies are doing it. We can help. In November of 1970, a couple months after the Pink Floyd Medicine Ball Caravan show in England, the massive Bola cyclone struck East Pakistan, the country we today call Bangladesh. It remains the deadliest tropical storm ever recorded and one of the world's deadliest natural disasters with between 300,000 and 1 million estimated deaths. In its wake, a vast tidal wave. Life goes with the waters, leaving behind death, 
in many grotesque shapes and forms. The relief efforts were stymied by incompetent politicians, and soon after the cyclone, the region fell into the Indo-Pakistani War of 1971, a nightmare of civil war and genocide. So of course Wavy and the Hog Farm can't just go on a regular hippie bus adventure. They have a purpose, to provide basic human needs to the neediest humans on Earth. Can you describe what life was like living on the bus? Oh, sure. What did you eat? A lot of brown rice. An enormous amount of brown rice. Not much else that I remember. Yeah, let's talk about hippie food. What are your thoughts on it? Uh, yum. (laughs) And luxurious dining at every meal. I had a bullhorn, and I would read from Beelzebub's tales to his grandchildren, or also called All and Everything, and I would read a chapter or so from that each, each day over my PA, and that would cause people to fall asleep, <laughs> which was, you know, was some pretty heavy stuff. That's, we're talking Gurdjieff. <laughs> this is not Little Miss Muffet or anything. This is Gurdjieff. George Gurdjieff, 1866 to 1949, was an Armenian-Greek philosopher, teacher, composer, and mystic born in Russian Armenia, who believed and taught that humans do not possess unified consciousness, but live in a state of hypnotic waking sleep. And yet it is possible to awaken a higher state of consciousness and achieve full human potential. And that's a whole other podcast. Back to Wavy. What did people think of you guys along the way? They thought we were strange, and we thought they were strange, and so it was even Stephen. (laughs) And they would love to come on the bus and look around, and we would be happy to have them. The glorious thing about Wavy is that he sees the world through rose-colored glasses. But luckily for us, he surrounded himself on the bus with other hog farmers who remembered non-rose-colored stories. Here's Georgie. Did you hear about what else we did in Istanbul? You know, there was that morning we woke up with all those people around the bus freaked out because we're uh, we're hippies in a bus, right? And they just discovered that Manson killed uh, Sharon Tate and Polanski. We talked about Charles Manson in episode six. Well, in 1971, Manson and his cult murdered Roman Polanski's pregnant wife, Sharon Tate, and their unborn child. So Rory and Calico come back from the French embassy with cops. Georgie's talking about Rory and Calico, other hog farm members. They come back with people that speak Turkish. They come back with people to help us. And the people say, oh, so there's a murder in Turkey, and it's a farmer that killed his wife. Well, not every farmer in Turkey kills their wife. America's filled with hippies on buses. Not every hippie on a bus in America is into black magic and kills people, but it took them a couple hours to get everybody dispersed from threatening us. But they stuck with it until the crowd dispersed. But it was a scary moment, and it was also scary for us because we knew some of the people that had gotten gone off with him. And so we were very frightened for them all. Being hippies on the Silk Road came with challenges and goals unique to their subculture. Along with the objective to deliver humanitarian supplies to the cyclone victims in Bangladesh, the hog farm endeavored to combat human suffering with peace and love along the way. The thing that we were doing in Istanbul, which was like so vital and so wonderful, is this was years before the Midnight Express came out, the movie. He was a 20-year-old American boy, up against a system he didn't understand, spoken in a language he couldn't speak. He was beyond the help of his parents and the power of the United States government. And yet, he triumphed. His name is Billy Hayes. His story is true. The movie, 
is Midnight Express. Midnight Express is a 1978 film nominated for Best Picture and Director, starring John Hurt and written by Oliver Stone, based on Billy Hayes' non-fiction book of the same name. It's about an American locked up in a Turkish prison for smuggling hashish. We went around and we went to all the embassies, all the Western embassies, and we found out who was in prison in Istanbul in that terrible Midnight Express prison that were in there for drugs. And we went and visited all of them. Here's Wavy's wife, Jahanara. When we were in Turkey, our bus broke down and we were in Turkey a long time near Ankara. And uh, we went to the prison there and we went outside the prison and we yelled to people in the upstairs who could lift themselves up and look out the, the barred windows. And we couldn't visit the prison unless we had the name and I think the social security number of a prisoner. So we got people to yell us their names. So we visited the prison saying, I'm here to see my friend so-and-so. And I visited two women in the prison and uh, everybody else visited whatever gender they were of names that we could get yelled out the window. I got to see two women who were in prison for having a tiny bit of marijuana. I didn't write down their names. I don't think I was able to carry a pen or anything in. And one was in prison for three years and one was for way longer, like maybe 11 years or something. It was nothing. They were nice girls like me. Both of these women were Americans. And they told us that other people who were caught with drugs crossing the border were shot right there at the border. Back to Dorji. And we had just come from Europe, so we'd saved all the newspapers in their home languages. We had little boom boxes and tapes and books in their languages. And we just loaded up these gift back baskets with things because we thought they may never see anybody again in this horrible dungeon. So we spent maybe three weeks there doing that. And that was um, moving, powerful, important work. And we were glad we did it. And the whole time we were there, camped right out on the Bosphorus, we got up at three o'clock in the morning to see this giant four-pointed star in the sky that looks just like the Star of Bethlehem because it was the Star of Bethlehem. It was a conjunction that the wise men 2,000 years before had followed to Bethlehem. And it was there every morning. And man, did we know that we were in the Far East when we got up every morning to look at that star. We'd sit on the hillside and look at the Bosphorus in the morning light. This is Turkey, the land of in-between. Here in the harbor of Istanbul, east meets west. For this is the Bosphorus, part of the Turkish Straits which separate Europe from Asia and links the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. We'd all been traveling for months and months and months and my son's dad, Peter Kampf, that was driving one of the buses in Istanbul, just got the idea that he would take us all to the hammam, the Turkish bath, and he took us all to the Turkish bath, all the girls, and he said, these are all my wives. And he got this great discount on us and man, We were in that bath and the way that the light filtered into this steamy dome. I went to Hamam's when I went back 50 years later and it was not the same thing anymore. They'd all been fancied up and turned into kind of spa-like places with individual little privacy cubbies. But when we were there, it was like everybody in this giant open room still and the hot water came out of the spigots all the way around this big steamy room. Everywhere in Turkey where we went and we took baths, we were there with all the local women. It was kind of the only time we saw women was we either saw them all completely veiled up or not in the street or completely naked with the magic soap that took all the hair off their bodies. And then when we were in France getting our visas, all the embassies said, 
You guys cannot travel this road in the winter. This is a dangerous freezing road in the winter. You won't be able to see it. And we said, oh, we're hippies. We can do anything. Like a, like a bunch of numbskulls. And so when we got to Turkey, Eastern Turkey, it became 40 below outside. And the glass on the inside of the bus was all had a half inch of frost on it. And you could say, oh my God, how are they, how can they tell where the road is? It all looks like just a frozen plane. And then one night the fuel started to freeze in the lines as we were driving. And if that had happened, we would have had no heat at all because we couldn't stop or we wouldn't have heat. And the crazy boys pulled over, asked for all of our bath towels. They dipped them into kerosene. They wrapped them around the gas lines under the bus while we were upstairs and they lit them on fire to thaw them out. And it worked. And we went further down the road and we found this closed inn where they couldn't, the gas was frozen in the ground. We were out of fuel and we couldn't get fuel in because the gas was frozen in the ground. And so he said that even though he was closed, some of us could go in there and fit around his stove for the night. But it, there wasn't room for everybody. There was room for 35 people and there was 42 of us. And so me and six other people climbed into the back bunk on one of the buses with everybody's extra sleeping bag on top of us and hung on all night and we, we made it. And when we woke up in the morning, there was Mount Ararat, where the first rainbow was right there. That's where we had landed. This then is Turkey, the land of in-between. Born out of the East, she now works with the West for the brighter future which she is seeking. How many buses did you have? One, two, two and a couple of vans. Like to see things, meet new people? Try exclusive Greyhound Scenic Cruiser service. Lean back in air-conditioned comfort. Enjoy picture windows that let you see the sights close up. There were Heinrich's Rainbow Repair Shop and whatever I was riding in, it was probably an ass. We took it from the license plate, ASP. It wasn't a fabricated name, but the ass was the ass because obviously it was on the license plate. Uh, we always had one person that handled all the passports and it certainly wasn't me. Back to Dr. Larry. We traveled through uh, Germany. We lived in Turkey for about a month when we blew a, a water pump, which we learned in Turkish is Supampa. Here's Dorgie on the bus breakdown in Turkey. When you broke down, there was no place that had parts for any of these old buses. And so what they did was they manufactured the parts. We were living in the buses while they fixed them, right? So we would be in these garages still living in the buses while people were working on them. And there was this one place in Ankara. And uh, oh my God, there was a man there that just completely fell in love with Calico. I mean, he wanted to marry her. It was like he followed her everywhere. It was like so poignant because of course it was too far a stretch. It just wasn't going to occur, but it was pretty amazing. But anyway, the mechanic in that place, he sat up on this dais. He wore white gloves and his workers would come with the parts after they had them cleaned and he would take them in his white gloves. So they had to be clean. I don't think I ever saw him get his gloves dirty and send anybody away, but I imagine that could have happened. And uh, they, they machined right there in the shop, new parts. It took days. 
It's important to note this epic bus journey takes place only 25 years after the end of World War II in Europe. So we were in Germany. Traveling westward into Germany, we're in a different world. And the thing is about Germany, out in the countryside, there weren't any little old men. There was lots and lots of little old women, but there weren't any little old men. We, we had this wonderful old guy that traveled with us. His name was Heinrich Grubman, and he was a concert pianist. And I used to play uh, Invisible Gin Rummy with him at border crossings. Uh, it was always a draw. Here's Dorgie on Heinrich Grubman. We had this guy Heinrich with us who had danced with Nijinsky, and he spoke five languages, and none of them were English. And when Visa Peter, Visa Peter and I were the people that went out and got permission to visit all the prisoners in Istanbul. But how we got named Visa Peter is that Visa Peter and I went all over Paris and got everybody's visas. And all the visas were really easy to get, except for his. He was Polish and he was a stateless person left over from World War I and it was a political point of view for him. And he didn't want to be in an alliance with anyone. But for a while, he taught us all how to, uh, he would, he would like pound his stake on the ground, his cane on the ground. Uh, he was, you know, 90. And we would, um, we would dance. He would like have us dance. He would keep the beat with his cane. And we would all get out in the snow in Austria and we would plie for exercise. And we would like, you know, do these little ballet moves because it was cool to let him teach us. So... He stayed in Nepal. Yeah, he stayed in Kathmandu. He became the darling of the international set. And there was an abandoned grand piano upstairs in the American embassy. And he just sat down and played heavenly music for the rest of his days and never left Nepal. That's where he, he stayed. Grubman, by the way, is a German Ashkenazic name that means man who lives in a hollow. So we can assume he's a European Jewish survivor of the Holocaust. So it was all hunky-dory, live and let live, and let's uh, on to the next frontier. Iran knew greatness in the days when it was known as Persia. East and west lie other Muslim lands. Turkey, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Afghanistan. North, the Soviet Union lies beyond the Albers Mountains. Here's Dr. Larry. And then we went to Iran. Iran, of course, had the Shah. And it was really, really, really careful. I hated drug dealers. And we were coming from Turkey. And let's just say that our bus had to be really cleaned out before we could go in, into Iran. We went into Iran. We stayed with the gypsies. We had wonderful experiences with the whirling dervishes and the Sufis. And we found that underculture underneath the Shah. That was the great Persian mystical culture. The early 70s in Iran were marked by events that paved the way for the 1978-79 Iranian Revolution, which overthrew the American-backed Shah, replacing the government with an Islamic republic led by Ayatollah Khomeini. A thousand years ago, the poet Ferdowsi sang the praises of spring among Persia's mountains. Today, the people of Iran still look to their mountains for water, precious water for the high arid plain on which most of the people live. Of course, it was different being a woman on the bus in the Middle East. Here's Wavy's wife, Jahanara. The places that seemed dangerous and scary, and uh, the women had to stay inside the buses and uh, pee in buckets, and the boys would carry our buckets out and empty them. You know, it was like, you. it was really scary in Pakistan. 
in Iran. Wadey and I walked across that border. I think it was in it was Iran because I didn't dare drive on the bus because I just didn't trust all of my family were actually completely free of marijuana. <laughs> and we asked everyone, you just drop everything, do not carry, do not cross the border carrying anything. And I just didn't believe it, so we walked across. Back to Dorji. Oh, and then we went through Iran, which was terrifying. I mean, we ran into these Brits in a um, KOA campground that were trying to raise money for their relative because it was like death sentence for hashish. You know, and we were hippies and we were used to our taking whatever freedoms we wanted to take in the world. You know, our motto was, you know, do whatever you like, be kind, don't hurt anybody and it's fine. So they were going to give the de- this death penalty to this guy and his family was in there trying to raise money for him and, you know, we didn't have any money. I mean, I think we gave them some shekels, but, you know, it was, I don't know what happened. We have seen remarkable things. But few, if any, have had the color and the beauty and the dramatic impact of the strange, partly ancient, yet partly modern land of Persia. We would play fake golf. Well, it's not like 18-hole golf. We would make up a bit of a a course and uh, take turns whacking a ball to try and get it into the preferred hole. Back to Dr. Larry. We went into Iraq, and we then came to the Iran-Afghani border. And as we were going into Afghanistan, now remember, we knew that it was the death penalty to have drugs when we were in Iran. So we clearly did not have any drugs. We tried very hard. But, you know, these sofas have pockets and difficult to get rid of everything you have. And, and hashish is very easy. So we got to the border. We opened up the door and the wonderful Afghanis. This was in Herat, a quinkly kind of place that had horse and carriages and little lantern lights and bells that went little pixie dust in the air. It really felt like a magical place. Afghanistan is a country of a quarter of a million square miles. Five times the size of England and Wales, it lies at the crossroads of Asia, and in former times was often the battleground between great rival civilizations. And the customs guards boarded the bus, and they said, okay, where are your drugs? And I was appointed the spokesperson because I was the doctor. Later, I became the guru commissioner. But in this instance, I was to negotiate with the customs officials, and I said, no, we do not have any drugs. You have drugs, it'll go easier on you if you just show them to us and we'll confiscate them and there won't be any problem. But if we find them and you're hiding them, it will go very bad for you. I said, no, really. We are hippies, but we're not stupid. We got rid of all the drugs. We have no drugs. And one of the customs guys looks at the other and said, do you think they're telling the truth? And he said, no, we've seen lots of buses that painted psychedelic just like this. They all had drugs. And I looked at him and I said, I'm telling you the truth. We don't have any drugs. We don't have any hashish. And the other customs official looked at him and said, you know, I, th- I think I believe him. The guy looked at me and said, oh, I'm so sorry. You don't have any hashish? Well, come, come have some of ours. And all the hippies got off the bus and we sat around the customs officer and they, they were very hospitable. This was a memorable moment for everyone. Here's Jahanara. And then when we got to Afghanistan, uh, we were met by the border guards. And then after we got in, they all offered us hashish (laughs) to share their hashish with us, the border guards. (laughs) So it was like we left where we were. It was a whole other world. The Afghans are great horsemen. They are a vigorous warrior people forced by history to maintain their independence through many wars. 
And in Afghanistan, it was just totally love and kisses the whole way. And everyone was sweet and beautiful. And, you know, it's like after having lived the last, you know, 30 years and seeing what happened with how we all feel about Afghanistan, it was just amazing. And we went up into the hills and there was this uh, the, a group of nomadic people traveling around with tents and horses, women very extraordinarily dressed with bangles or everything. What they were worth was on their bodies in gold. And we had a painted buses and the buses in Afghanistan were all beautifully painted wildly. And they, they recognized us as poor artists, but somehow akin. They were... Uh, nice to us because it was clear we were learning and uh, we had a lot of patchwork clothing and their clothing was fantastic <laughs> and they took us to their communities and they dressed up their a couple of our women dressed them in the local clothing and put them up on camels and we all took pictures and it was really nice afghanistan has many historic towns and cities but again because of wars and invasions these have tended to decline rather than grow. When you guys got to Afghanistan in the bus, tell me about visiting the people. Oh, we'd just be buzzing along and they want to know what what our purpose was. What is your purpose? <laughs> we're just going down the road, you know, and we're going to the Himalayas. And where in the Himalayas are we going? We're going to Jamsam. That's as far as you could go. It was very hard to drive from Kathmandu to Jamsam. You had to take the Chinese road, and it was very precarious. Much of the country consists of high, barren mountain ranges. These make transport and communications difficult. Only horses, mules, or donkeys can negotiate the steep, rocky tracks. One time I was walking in one of the Afghan towns by myself. It was safe to wander, you know, like you didn't walk outside the bus in Pakistan, uh, you'd be surrounded by men with whips, you know. I mean, really, literally. But in Afghanistan, I, and I got lost. It was all high walls and paths, and, you know, there was little houses and underneath. So I just stood outside one of the walls, and I said, help, help me, I need help. And they couldn't, of course, understand me, but some women came out, and they took me into their house, I don't know, we communicated without being able to communicate. It was clear that I let them know that I was lost and that I had to go to the bathroom. So they got that, and then they pointed me to a room, and then I, there was no place to use the bathroom, and I had to ask them, what do I do? And they said, oh, you sit over here and you just pee standing up. <laughs> okay. Then uh, they showed me how, where to wash my hands, and, and then they uh, gave me food and sent me back with one of their sons to walk me back to where the buses were. That happened to me twice when I was in, uh, once, once there and once in Nepal. How did you guys fund the adventure? Good question. Let's see, uh, one of our uh, exploits was purchasing some naughty uh, stuff for David Crosby from <laughs> uh, these bandits on the top of the Khyber Pass. Opium? Yeah, something like that. Or cocaine. I know that I had some, it made my head numb. <laughs> In fact, we did a bunch of it and then we drove over the Khyber Pass and it was quite an... Ad <laughs> I said, holy moly, I thought we were flying. Entertainment and fun. 
to add to all the rest of our holiday memory. Back to Dr. Larry. But when we got into Pakistan and we couldn't get a visa to go to East Pakistan because it had become Bangladesh then. We went through Pakistan, which was very dangerous and scary. Pakistan is a country split in two, West Pakistan and East Pakistan, separated by a thousand miles of another nation, the Republic of India. An object of Britain's global colonialism, Pakistan was two provinces, East and West Pakistan, until 1971, same year Wavy and the Hog Farm were on the Silk Road, when the Bangladesh Liberation War led to the formation of Bangladesh, formerly East Pakistan. The people of West Pakistan and the people of East Pakistan speak different languages, live in different climates, eat different foods, but they pray to God in the same way. Most of them are Muslims. It is the Muslim faith which holds the nation together. Here's Dorji. When we pulled into Pakistan, Islamabad, all these people just started picking up rocks and throwing rocks at us. It was the craziest thing. You know, like some places, the Saudis would come out of the hills and they'd put their tridents in the ground and they'd take out their tillums and they'd go, oh, you are the Saudis of the West. And they would pass us tillums full of hashish. But in Pakistan, they picked up rocks and started throwing them at us. And it was just interesting how our presence struck people so differently from moment to moment. You know, 40 hippies and two painted psychedelic buses. Dr. Larry, I remember this, got on the phone and called the American embassy. And he said, listen, they're throwing rocks at us out here. And so the American embassy printed up these flyers that said, the spirit of Woodstock comes to Islamabad. And I gotta say, it was weird. I mean, you know, because people in, in Islamabad didn't have a lot of money. And inside the American compound, there was like a giant golf course. There was a lake with sailboats. I mean, they had commandeered so much space that they had protected and called theirs. On one level, it was really uncomfortable. On another level, however, they cooked up hot dogs, hamburgers, did our laundry and washing machines, gave us hot showers. And I went to golfing with Dr. Larry and the ambassador. And some of us went horseback riding and some of us went sailing. And we broke into these groups and everybody got to go. They, they recreated with us in like little America in the middle of Pakistan. It was pretty bizarre. I don't think Wavy came golfing or I would have remembered, but he might have. Yes, you rang. Do you remember me? Embassy? Mm, uh, not really, but uh, I believe you. I was there. Golfing, sailing. I was, I was playing golf in the Pakistani. What? Yeah, Dorji told me you guys went to Islamabad to the American Embassy and did leisure activities. Ah, strange, these headaches. That's an old riff from Superman comics. Back to Dorji. They gave us this mountain of CSM, cornmeal, soy milk, and powdered milk. And it is the cheapest complete protein you could make. And they had mountains and warehouses full of this stuff because they were trying to feed the world for the least going the furthest. The problem was is that no one would eat this stuff. And it tasted pretty green and pretty terrible. And Goose worked on it. Goose was a hog farm member. She figured out a way to make CSM chapatis. Finally, people would eat them. 
The fabulous road to India, sought over the centuries by many explorers, including Columbus, is within easy reach now. And it was interesting because we'd stop and we'd cook for people and have these free kitchens at these various places. And mostly no one would take food from us unless they were also untouchables. I guess that meant we were untouchables. The untouchables, also known as Dalits, are the lowest caste in the Hindu caste system, the social structure of the Hindu population of India, which is the majority of the country. They were like trying to put us somewhere in the caste system, so that's what they did. People really wouldn't take food from us unless they were the poorest of the poor, and they would watch us, but they wouldn't actually eat until we... But we had very large success in Benares. At Benares, spiritual capital of the Hindu world, the faithful bathe in the sacred waters, a ceremony repeated since the dawn of time itself. We got to India, and we ran into Ram Das and his ashram people. And that was a cool uh, merging of hippie <laughs> Was that a random? Yeah, just uh, one thing led to another. We did a lot of that. Ramdas, formerly Richard Alpert, was a former Harvard University professor with famed LSD researcher Timothy Leary. Ramdas, who died in 2008, became known as an American spiritual leader, psychologist, writer, and yoga guru, best known for his 1971 book Be Here Now, a seminal tome in the genre of spirituality, yoga, and meditation. He's another hippie icon. My brother-in-law tried to take Ramdas out with a big rock. Because he didn't like the way that Ramdas was dealing with Heinrich Grobman. Remember, Heinrich Grobman is the stateless senior citizen bus companion who danced with Nijinsky. The oldest person in our crew, he was about 85 or something like that and was a concert pianist and improvisational actor. We, we worked it out. It, it, it all turned out to be just fine. Well, we convinced Jahanara's brother that he didn't need to hit Ramdas with a rock. <laughs> and I think we might still have that rock somewhere. It was quite a, quite a deal for, for a few minutes. Back to Dorji. We were funky. We were on the road for months. And Frank got this giant pot from somewhere. And he built this huge fire. And everyone could give him one pair of their dirty Levi's. And he boiled them. And he boiled them for hours is how he cleaned them. And it's just, we really appreciated it. It was wonderful to be clean after um, all that time on the road. Once we got to the warmer climates, you just bathed at the well. And we all learned how to bathe with our clothes on in buckets. And it was warm and fine. And that's the way they did it then. By the time you'd wash your clothes and um, hang them out to dry. And by the time you were done bathing, your because your clothes were all light, lightweight and it was very hot, your clothes would be dry and you'd put on your clean clothes while you you could get dressed and undressed in public it was a learned skill such is the fascination of india the strong and progressive spirit of india the power and the splendor of india the everlasting beauty of india in this world of ours and it was pleasant enough to run into the ramdas people in india but we were just pressing on in the higher service of the lord as it's a bob dylan song on the piano. It's really cool. Did you climb any of these mountains when you got to the Himalayas? Oh, we walked around a little bit, though. We drove one bus on the Chinese road from Kathmandu to Pokhara. But the rest of us flew in and did all kinds of wonderful things. Nepal itself, with its temples, beliefs, and people, has hardly been touched by what we call civilization. 
a land which only now is beginning to reveal its secrets and splendors to a curious world. Back to Dorji. When we were in Kathmandu, one of the things that I did was there was a hospital, and I remember the floor, it was all made out of um, broken British teacups. It was like a mosaic. I was like, I went, oh, look at that. That's practical. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I went with like spinach and tapes. Again, we did one of those things where we filled up baskets and we went and visited people that had gotten really sick there that were Westerners. Again, it was a service to Westerners thing. If they didn't have people, we would bring them things. We would bring them things to write letters home with. We would like just do that to them. And there was this one guy that decided after talking to me for a while, I entertained him pretty regularly for a while with stories, to give us six grand. And that's how we got home. And we had this big meeting and we decided um, that what we were gonna do since the money had been given to us is that we were gonna borrow it to get home on and then we were all gonna put it back in and make an Earth People's Park payment. Welcome. This is Nepal, land of mountains, land of worship. A Buddhist monk worships his beloved mountains, prays to his gods, and thanks them for this beauty. Here's Mrs. Gravy again. We got to Nepal, and I, by that time, was pregnant, just barely. I probably wasn't even sure I was pregnant yet, but I was getting sick in the morning. And I told them, go ahead on, and I will. We had these little pieces of paper that said, here's someone who will take you in and, you know, give, give you a place in the yard to sleep and give you lentils for three rupees. And so I had that thing with me, and so I, I said, you go on. When I feel better, I'll follow you. I'll be there by night. Put the, wherever you are, lay out the whole earth flag, and I'll see it, and I'll go there. So they went, and I followed the river, and that was the instructions, follow the river. But little did I know, there was a tributary coming in. Hi, Wavy Gravy. Brief domestic moment. I am giving an interview to Cecily, and I'll soon bring this in to you. Okay, I'm going to throw this in the fridge. Some potato puffs and a half a sandwich. Excellent. Back to Nepal. So there was a tributary coming in to the river. And so instead of following the river, I went up the tributary. And it looked like that's where to go. And I got up till it was nothing but rice fields and there was no more path. And I knew there were dangerous snakes in the rice fields. I realized that I was in real trouble. And I could see in the distance there was a little hut. And so I just said, please, you know, save me from the snakes. And I thrashed, hoping to scare snakes away. And I thrashed to the hut and I got to the hut and was met by a terrifying dog. And the dog lunged at me and I climbed, I don't know how I did this, but I climbed a fence. I was on top of a pole for the dog couldn't reach me and I thought okay this is really I'm in danger and uh, a man came out he hollered for who was in the cabin and thank god a woman came out and she calmed down the dog it was by then getting to be sunset she took me into the cottage and she put a piece of paper on the floor she fed me lentils and said that in the morning, she, you know, pointed to her son and made a walking, you know, fingers walking, and let me know that one of her sons would walk me to the river because we figured out what had happened. And so she was a woman with three sons, and we all slept in a little cabin in a little, it was a hut. It was like one room with a dirt floor. I remember I had some money with me, and so I hid it under the 
piece of paper I was sleeping on, and her sons walked me to where I could pick up the path to where my family was. But I was realizing that I was uh, in actual genuine danger. I mean, you counter three men that far from home and a young woman by itself, you can't assume that you're going to be fed and given a place to rest. Back to Dr. Larry. And then we turned left and we drove into Kathmandu. Then I went to the customs and uh, immigration people in Kathmandu. I had my beard. I had a suit on. And they gave us a visa so we could go marching uh, and trekking in the hills all the way up to Mustan. So we did that. We had two porters. One carried all of Wavy's toys. The other carried medical supplies. The Nepalese culture can be characterized by numerous festivals and holidays throughout the year. And then we walked. Me and Ja and Larry Brilliant and his wife, Gurja, we could only go in little bursts. Otherwise, we would overwhelm the trail. So uh, we lit out with them, and it was quite wonderful. And kept on trekking, and we had, to, we had to go across these little tiny bridges that were like four inches wide, you know, like they were trees or they were four by fours, and we'd cross this big gorge. It was hundreds of feet down into roaring. Most of us couldn't climb, couldn't really walk on that thing. It's like walking on a tightrope, isn't it? Wavy was able to do it. And we had a couple of Sherpas to carry Larry's medical supplies and my clown stuff and our other stuff that we couldn't carry. We carried packs, but our Sherpas took care of a lot of it. And they would journey on ahead and find a village and we'd catch up with them and they'd have set up either a place where we could stay inside or we would set up outside with tents and collapse after a full day of walking. And then, yeah, we kept doing that until we got to jump some. Jamsam, Nepal, is at 8,900 feet in the trans-Himalayan region of Annapurna and is known as the trekking gateway to Upper Mastan. Fun fact, Jamsam is cut in half by the deepest gorge in the world, and its stunningly stark beauty makes it a global destination for mountain bikers and climbers. Back to Dr. Larry. And every time we would stop, if I had to sew somebody up who'd been cut, we would just start blowing bubbles. We'd wake up in the morning and people would be lined up to see Larry, and Larry would do clinic. And while Larry was doing clinic, I would blow bubbles and play with children. And then we would pack up and go on to the next day's journey and collapse and get up in the morning and I would do fun with kids and Larry would do clinic. And then we would press on, almost to Tibet. Or as Groucho Marx used to say, Tibet your life. One time we got to this temple that was about maybe 12,000 feet. And during that period that I was treating them, Wavy went across the street to the Buddhist temple. And he was invited in to the temple by a young man who introduced him to the Lama who was there. And Wavy started blowing bubbles. And they'd never seen bubbles. And if you've never seen a bubble blower blown by a clown, it must look like magic. And they were so enamored and that not just the Westerners had come to, you know, buy their sacred Buddhas or just to see the mountains, but this is a Westerner who clearly looked like a holy man. And they looked at him like a holy man. And then he decided that he would only blow one bubble every time they did the gong. So they were going, and he would blow one bubble. And... Because he was blowing only one bubble, that one bubble had such meaning and slowed down time. So we're in that area, he came to watch Wavy. And in the end, he, he gave the 
bottle of bubbles to the llama. And uh, Wavy wrote in his memoirs, and he envisions from that time on every day that they do any sacred event, they will blow one bubble for Buddha. We are climbing Papo's ladder. We are climbing Papo's ladder. Just an opera hat full of yellow chickens. He was a soldier of the clouds. The trip to Nepal was more than just a pleasure cruise. It laid the foundation for Wavy, Dr. Larry, and the Hog Farm's non-profit baby, Seva. Seva is a Sanskrit word that means service to humankind. Which we'll get into in episode 11. What happened after Nepal? I flew back from Johnson because I had to return to the free world to uh, have more sawing away on my low back. I believe it was, it was the all-star cast, which was blue with stars. In the next episode, Wavy's comedic activism kicks up to new heights of awesomeness and total absurdity. My God, they busted Santa Claus! And hilarity. How about the tap-dancing penguins? With celebrities. And I talked the uh, captain into smuggling in a guitar for Jackson. Jackson Brown! American Prankster is executive produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios, Eric Hober, Larry and Gertrude, Brilliant God and Company, Thessal Learner Rainbow Valentine and Wavy Gravy, and sponsored by Levy Informatics at levyinformatics.com. Episode 9, written, edited, produced, and scored by Thessaly Lerner, with original music by Will Collins, Greg Moore, Hope for a Golden Summer, and Gabby Lala. Mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher, narrated by Rainbow Valentine. Associate producers are Sage Leem, Ryan Reeves, Trina Calarone, Zappo Dickinson, Jundid Sykes, Johanna Romney, and Mark Margolis. Logo by Jordan Paysano. Special thanks to our Episode 9 guests, Johanna Romney, Dorji Bond, and Larry Brilliant, plus a Appreciation to all the do re me budget donors, our partners at Pantheon Podcasts, and you, our listener, and the incomparable Wavy Gravy. For more info, go to rainbowvalentine.com or wavygravy.net. Raise a glass to the downfall of evil and towards the fun. If you like the podcast, please share it with a friend. We need a grassroots campaign to get this story out there. And also, if you like it, please review. Give us five stars. Why not? Five stars are the best in the podcast world. If you like it, seriously, please share it. Everybody needs to hear the story. It uplifts and inspires. Fight the downfall of evil by sharing the podcast. Thanks so much for listening.